When I was young, friends, my dad and I had a tradition. We regularly went out for burgers and fries at this local Checkers. You may have heard of it. It's not too local. It's a fast food chain nationwide. Our Checkers, however, was more like a shack. Uh, it was takeout only. There were cracks in the pavement. It was not well upkept. But regularly, my dad and I would walk in there and we would order two cheeseburgers with all the condiments and all the sauces, all the fixings that they put on it. And then we'd also order a big thing of French fries. Now, I might be a little bit biased, but these were the best French fries on God's green earth. No other French fry, no matter how skinny or crispy, no matter how wedged or how curly or how seasoned could compare to these delicious seasoned French fries. This was amazing. These burgers just melted and exploded with flavor in your mouth. The giant patty of meat with some slices of cheese and delicious sauces that no other burger joint would put on their burgers. Nothing else compared, at least in my young mind. And again, just to be clear, there was nowhere to sit inside of this checkers. It would be me and my dad eating outside at one of their few tables if the weather was nice, but it was Chicago. Let's face it, the weather was rarely, if ever, nice. So more often than not, we'd sit and eat in his car in the parking lot of the checkers like we had nowhere else to be. But that's how delicious and amazing these burgers were and these french fries so we did it, and we enjoyed it, and it's one of my most favorite memories. And again, this Checkers was never really that busy, and as I said, it was never really well-maintained, but it was something special that only me and my dad would do. So imagine my horror and shock when one Friday we rolled up and it was closed. And not temporarily closed, closed for good, like they were gone, like they had never even been there. The weeds were extra long growing through the cracks in the pavement. It made me wonder how long this building had been abandoned and vacated. And it was a sad moment. I remember wishing for just one more last checkers burger with the fr all the fixings and the french fries that were the best french fries in God's green earth. One more time to eat those burgers and french fries in my dad's car with my dad what I would have given to have that last moment. You know, you and I often know where we were and, and when we heard some really bad news. You might recall where you were when you saw a natural disaster or footage of something uh, that was monumental, like a terrorist attack, or when you saw one of your favorite places having their going out of business sale. The closer to home it is, the more it impacts you, the more likely you are to care about it and feel personally affected. It can be even more disheartening to hear of something that's happened a while ago, and you're just hearing about it for the first time. It's old news to other people, but it's fresh news to you. Today we find ourselves with a man named Nehemiah who had just such an experience. If you have your Bibles this morning, I'd encourage you to open up to the book of Nehemiah. Again, we're going through this series about overlooked books in the Bible, and Nehemiah is the one we are looking into today. And we will find that he, too, hears of some disheartening news well after something terrible has happened. So we're in Nehemiah chapter 1, starting in verse 1, going through verse 3. 
the words of Nehemiah, the son of Halatia. Now it happened in the month of Chislev, in the 20th year, as I was in Susa, the citadel, that Hananiah, one of my brothers, came with certain men from Judah. And I asked them concerning the Jews who escaped, who had survived the exile and concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, the remnant there in the province who survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are destroyed with fire. So, wait a minute. How did we get here? Exiles? Walls completely destroyed? Gates burned with fire? Well, remember that the Israelites, when they lived in the land of Jerusalem, uh, in in the land of Israel and Judea, that God had made a covenant with their forefathers that if they would disobey and rebel and abandon Yahweh, that God would let them go into exile. And so the Israelites, maybe unsurprisingly, did exactly that. They abandoned God, they rebelled, and they disobeyed, and unsurprisingly, Yahweh, God, did exactly what he said he would do. The Israelites were dragged into exile. The Babylonians had dragged the Israelites into exile 120 or more years before Nehemiah's time. So it had been over 120 years since the Israelites had been dragged into exile by the time we find ourselves with Nehemiah. And again, that was the Babylonian Empire. And now they're being ruled by the Persian Empire. So not only do we not even have the original Israelites that were dragged off into exile, their captors, the people that had pulled them into exile, weren't even the same people anymore. They'd been conquered by a totally different evil empire, the Persian Empire. Imagine just how disheartened they were. Just imagine how long-suffering they'd been in exile. And that is where we find in Nehemiah. We have this guy, Nehemiah, and he's hearing this news about his people back in Israel. They had escaped exile and back in their homeland, a place that maybe Nehemiah had never even been. Now, Nehemiah, as we will see, is a man of action. So when he hears that the walls are completely destroyed, reduced to rubble, what do you think he does first? I know many of you are people of action. In your first step, guys, you're like, where's the closest Home Depot? Let's go. Let's get it done. I know the price of lumber is rather high, but we can do this. Let's, let's pull some resources and get it done. We also see that Nehemiah is a detailed man. I know some of you in this audience, you're super detailed. You're going to love Nehemiah. So what do you think he would do with that detailed side of him? Maybe he'd pull out that calculator and be like, how long was the wall again? How high? And he starts calculating out exactly how much it's going to cost, right? But does Nehemiah do any of those things first? No. Instead, he prays. Nehemiah chapter 1, let's pick up in verse 4 and go through verse 10. Nehemiah 1, 4. Nehemiah prays, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the people which we have sinned against you. Even I and my father's house have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statues, and the rules that you commanded your servant Moses. 
Remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though you are outcasts in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there I will gather them and bring them to a place that I have chosen to make my name dwell there. They are your servants and your people whom have been redeemed by your great power and your strong hand. O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight in to fear your name and give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. You'll notice that Nehemiah's prayer, first off, he's confessing his sins, something we all need to continue the practice of, confessing our sins, the places where we have wronged God and gone against what he has said to do. But you'll also notice that Nehemiah's prayer is bold. He is reminding God of God's own promises. He's saying, hey God, you know the things that you said you would do? Would you please do those in our day now? Please renew the things that you said you would do. Please make good on those promises. That's some bold prayers. I don't know about you, but not a lot of my prayers uh, have that as a, as a big part. I'm more like, God, I'm sorry for the things that I didn't do, and I'm so happy that you love me anyway, <laughs> right? I mean, that's kind of how we pray. But I love that Nehemiah is so bold, and he's willing to say, God, would you please do the things that you've promised, that you've said that you would do? I love that. You'll also notice that Nehemiah is asking to give, that God would give him success today. I love that, right? We all want to see things happen right now. We're like, God, would you let this happen today? Please let this happen today. Now, notice in his prayer, he says that he prays both day and night. So we know that soon enough, Nehemiah prays, would you let this happen today? And today turns into tomorrow, and tomorrow turns into next week, and every day Nehemiah prays, give me success today. You know how these things go, but it's not like God forgot Nehemiah's request. And as we soon will see, it was months before Nehemiah's prayer was answered. And I think that's because our timing is rarely ever God's timing, right? Our today isn't always God's today. And this leads us to our first point. When God seems silent, he's up to something you can't even imagine. When God seems silent, he's up to something that you or I can't even begin to imagine. And I'm glad that even when he seems silent, he is up to something that we can't even imagine. And Nehemiah might have had good reason to think that God was really silent. After all, they had been in exile for such a long time. The waiting for God to show up must have felt like an eternity. And even though God was silent, he was working behind the scenes and underneath the surface. He was up to something. Now, we didn't quite finish chapter one. For those detailed people, it might have bothered you for a minute, but that was on purpose. You see, I love this. Nehemiah tosses in verse 11 like he's like, oh yeah, I didn't need my audience to know this until just now. So let's pick up in Nehemiah chapter 1, verse 11, and go through chapter 2, verse 4, where we read, Now I was a cupbearer to the king. In the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when the wine was before him, I took up the wine and gave it to the king. 
Now I had not been sad in his presence. And the king said to me, why is your face sad, seeing as you are not sick? This is nothing but sadness of the heart. Then I was very much afraid. I said to the king, let the king live forever. Why should not my face be sad when the city, the place of my father's graves, lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed with fire? Then the king said to me, what are you requesting? So I prayed to the God of heaven. Now stop here for a minute. Let's notice that Nehemiah, not by his own efforts or his own abilities, finally has this opportunity to make his request known to the king. The request he's been wanting to make known to the king for four months. And you'll notice he's initially scared. And why wouldn't he be? He's in a place of high privilege. The king listens to him and trusts him. And we know the royal palace dealings. We know what that's like with the Persian Empire. All we have to do is look at the book of Esther. Now, Esther was the queen to a Persian king, and she was afraid for her life if she was to speak up. How much more would a cupbearer fear for his life? This is a huge request to make of the king. The most powerful man in the known world in Nehemiah's time. And even though Nehemiah had daily spent months praying, Nehemiah notes that when given an opportunity to speak to the king, he again prays to the king of kings. Let's pick up in verse 5 and go through verse 8. And I said to the king, if it pleases the king and if your servant has found favor in your sight so that you send me to Judah, to the city of my father's graves, that I may rebuild it. And the king said to me with the queen sitting right beside him, How long will you be gone? When will you return? So it pleased the king to send me when I had given him a time. And I said to the king, if it pleases the king, let letters be given to the governors of the province beyond the river, that they may let me pass through until I come to Judah. And letters to Esaph, the keeper of the king's forest, that he may give me timber to make beams for the gates of the fortress of the temple and for the wall of the city and for the house that I shall occupy. And the king granted me what I asked for, For the good hand of my God was upon me. Isn't that great? That's God who's been up to something behind the scenes and underneath the surface is bringing it together in God's own time. Nehemiah, a Jewish man who became a cupbearer to a Persian king who gets to go to Jerusalem, he does not waste any time getting to the work that God has called him to do. He inspects what needs to be done even in the middle of the night and he starts gathering people to do the work. Chapter 3 informs us in great detail about the people who went to rebuild what sections of the wall. And again, for those of you who are detailed, you might really enjoy chapter 3. You see, we get a lot of instances and records of who exactly repaired what. So, for instance, it goes something like this. Well, this one guy, he repairs this one small section of the wall right across from his house. This other guy, uh, he's a metal worker, and he repairs this slightly larger section. This other guy, he makes perfumes, and he repaired a section. And then there's this one guy, he's a leader of half a district, and he and all of his daughters repaired this huge section of the wall. So you might read it, and if you are uh, like me, you might be, your eyes might start to glaze over, and you're like, why is the Bible recording so many details? What does this have to do with me? And reading through this chapter might seem like just a list of random people, right? And whose names I wouldn't even begin to try to pronounce. And certainly this shows Nehemiah's accurate attention to detail. 
But you know, when I read it, you know what I see? I see a variety of people who may not have thought that they could make any significant contribution to God's kingdom work participating, volunteering, showing up to do what God has asked them to do. They were willing to help with the work that was laid on Nehemiah's heart. So by saying yes to Nehemiah to help rebuild the wall, they consequently got to participate in what God was up to in their time. What is God asking you or me to say yes to today? What work is God up to here in 2021 that he is calling us to participate actively in what he is already up to? Hey, listen, if you get nothing else out of this morning, hear this. God is inviting you and asking you to participate in what he is up to. Will you say yes? You see, what this shows us on a greater scale for Nehemiah is whatever your position, God has a kingdom purpose for you. No matter whatever that position, that place may be, no matter who you are, God has a kingdom purpose for you. Now, just because God wants to use you and I in his kingdom work does not mean that the road will be easy and paved with flowers, am I right? No matter what God is calling you to do, there almost certainly will be problems along the way. There will be conflict. There will be opposition. You see, the enemy, the devil, doesn't want you to fulfill God's kingdom purpose for you to do. The enemy is looking for a foothold. He's looking to disrupt and distract and sidetrack you, make your life busy, discourage you, frustrate you along the way. So how do we see this happen in Nehemiah's life? Well, let's look into Nehemiah chapter 4, because it doesn't take very long for this to happen. And starting in verse 1, we read this. Nehemiah 4, verses 1 through 3. Now when Sanballat heard that they were building the wall, he was angry and greatly enraged. And he jeered at the Jews. And he said in the presence of his brothers in the army of Samaria, What are these feeble Jews doing? Will they restore it for themselves? Will they sacrifice Will they finish it up in a day? Will they revive the stones out of the heaps of rubbish and burned ones at that? Tobiah the Ammonite was beside him and said, Yes, what they are building. If a fox goes up on it, it'll break down their stone wall. Now, can we pause here for a minute? What kind of insult is that? I don't get the sense that Tobiah is great at making sick burns. Like we get it. Oh, oh if a fox crawls up on it, you know, foxes are really small. He crawls up, oh, the wall falls over. Okay, okay, good job, Tobiah. Well done. Um, but regardless of how good or bad Sanballat or Tobiah's insults are, they sound a little bit like school children, like bullies on the playground. Like, oh, we're making, you can't do it, you're terrible. <laughs> but these insults and jeers probably represented real fears and doubts that I'm sure some of the Jews actually had. And that's so often the case with us too, right? The things that people say in our lives, maybe not even uh, unintentionally, sometimes can strike chords with us. You know, maybe these guys weren't that confident in rebuilding the wall. They're like, um, my construction skills are not that great. I mean, the one guy, he's a perfume maker. I mean, like how, how often do you think he works with like wood and stone and stuff? You know, I mean, it's probably outside of his comfort zone. And beyond that, they probably felt shame for how long their city had been in ruins. 
and they felt guilt for how their forefathers had abandoned Yahweh God. It would have been easy for them to be discouraged and frustrated. These people are insulting them, making fun of them. They might have wanted to respond. I mean, like, that's always the thing is we want to respond to people who are trolling us, right? It's a, it's a natural instinct. The internet was made for trolls and for people to respond to trolls. Um, this is a thing that happens. But these Jews, they don't do this at all. And I love this. Uh, Nehemiah 4.6, I love it. Nehemiah simply writes this in Nehemiah 4.6. He says, so we built a wall and the wall was joined together to half its height for the people had a mind to work. I love this. They had a mind to do the work. They would not allow themselves to become distracted or discouraged or dismayed. Their enemies, their bullies, their discouragers would not succeed in preventing them from doing the work. And that's what you and I need to do. We need to continue to do the work that God is calling us to do, regardless of the opposition. But as we'll soon see, their opposition doesn't only come from neighboring non-Jews, Let's pick up in verse 10 of chapter 4. In Judah, it was said, the strength of those who bear the burdens is failing. There is too much rubble. By ourselves, we will not be able to rebuild the wall. And our enemies said, they will not know or see till we come to them and kill them and stop the work. At that time, the Jews who lived near came in all directions and said to us 10 times, you must return to us. So in the lowest parts of the space behind the wall, in the open places, I stationed the people by their clans with their swords and their spears and their bows. And I looked and I arose and said to the nobles and to the officials and to the rest of the people, let's pause here for a minute. You, you got a picture. This is like one of these speeches. Nehemiah is like a leader of an army now. So, so I'm going to give it a little theatrics. Do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome. Fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your homes. Whew, yeah, Nehemiah. Inspiration, right? I mean, that's, that's Nehemiah's got it going on. He's like, he's straight to the point, right? He's like, it doesn't give him a lot of fluff. He's like, fight for your homes and your families. I mean, it's just great. It gives me goosebumps, right? You just got to get some swelling music in the background of your mind as you read that. You know, the Bible's not meant to be read in monotone. You may have noticed that whenever I preach. It's never monotone at all. All right, let's pick up. When our enemies heard that it was known to us that God had frustrated their plan, we all returned to the wall, each to his work. And from that day on, half of my servants worked on the construction and half held spears and shields and bows and coats of mail. And the leaders stood behind the whole house of Judah who were building the wall. And those who carried the burdens were loaded in such a way that each labored on the work with one hand and held his weapon with the other. And each of the builders had a sword strapped to his side while he built, and the man who sounded the trumpet was beside me. I love this. So you'll notice it isn't just the Arabs or the Ammonites or the Ashadites that insult those who are building the wall. Even those in Judah are saying, eh, they'll never complete it. And those Jews even living outside of the area are saying like, come back, come back, come back, come back, right? And this leads us to our third point. Regardless of the opposition, we must continue to work for his kingdom. Regardless of the opposition, no matter what it is and no matter where it comes from, you and I must continue the work for his kingdom. 
Friends, it might be easy to assume that those who are discouraging you from what God has called you to do are people who don't love Jesus, who aren't Christians, who don't participate in the church. They're not your friends or your loved ones, right? That's what we would assume and we would hope. But unfortunately, it's not always like that, is it? Sometimes someone who cares about you deeply and loves Jesus says something, perhaps unintentionally, that hurts you really deeply. Or maybe the discouragement against what God is calling and asking you to do, has burdened you to do, comes from really close friends or even family, those who live in the house with you. And maybe sometimes the discouragement comes from within. Because the enemy has fed you a lie that you've repeated over and over to yourself to the point that you believe it, even though it's a lie. So you and I, friends, we must be like the ones who rebuilt the wall around Jerusalem with a, a tool doing God's work in one hand and a sword in the other, ready to fight off any discouragement or opposition that the enemy might bring to us. You and I, we cannot let our guard down while we work. We must faithfully execute the God's call in our lives, and we must not waver. We must not grow faint, and I know that that's not easy. So we have to be on our guard. And no matter our circumstances, we must pursue what God is calling us to do. And friends, hear me out. I'm saying that just as much to myself as I am to those who are listening and to who God is speaking as well. So my take-home point for you this morning is you and I, we must patiently pray about what burdens us. And if God should open a door, we ought to pursue participation in his kingdom work without fear. We must patiently pray, faithfully, patiently pray about the things that God has allowed to burden us. And if God should open a door, we ought to pursue participation in his kingdom work without fear. You know, friends, when considering how to best wrap up Nehemiah, I kept coming back to what seems like one of the least significant verses in all of the parts of Nehemiah that we've already read. And that's Nehemiah chapter 1, verse 11, where he said, Now I was a cupbearer to the king. And you might be wondering, why is that so important? Here's why I think it stood out to me. I mean, let's think about this for a minute. What's even the point of being a cupbearer? You and I might read that and go, so he's like a waiter, right? Like he's, he brings the, the king his cup. He's bearing the cup. Well, we might go, oh, yeah, he's a king. He's probably having to taste everything the king has. So if, it, if it's poisoned, <clears throat> Nehemiah dies before the king. It's like, did you live? Okay, good. I'll drink now. Right? Like we, we go, oh, okay, I kind of get that, right? But history recounts that that's not all there is to it. The cupbearer had to be someone who was loyal and faithful. This person was a trusted advisor. He had the ear of the king, again, the most powerful man in the known world at his time. Nehemiah has a lot of influence. He is a position of power and influence and luxury and privilege. Nehemiah's got it going on. He's likely and very comfortable living in the palace, filled with lots of luxuries. He's probably quite protected, right? He's living in the palace. He's a trusted advisor. He's making sure the king doesn't get poisoned by someone else. 
He's able to give advice to the king. He's influential. And note this. I wonder if he thought, I can keep my people safe. And why do I say that? Well, note that the king he serves is King Artaxerxes. And King Artaxerxes' father, King Xerxes, by best estimations, is probably the same King Xerxes that Esther marries in a little-known book known as Esther. Now, for those of you who may don't remember Esther, Esther is a Jewish girl who is forced to marry this King Xerxes and then becomes aware of a plot against the Jews to kill the Jews. And so her uncle, Mordecai, says to her, Esther, who knows, you might have been put into a position of power for such a time as this. And she's able to save the Jews. She was able to participate as well in the kingdom work that God was doing in her day. And so I wonder if Nehemiah, having heard the story of Esther, since it was the king's father who, uh, to whom Esther was married, I wonder if Nehemiah thought to himself, I am in a position of power and influence, and I can help keep my people safe. I mean, after all, the people, the Jews in exile, are not these Jewish exiles more important than some walls around Jerusalem? I wonder if these things might have been going through Nehemiah's mind. And beyond this, who's Nehemiah? He's a cupbearer. That doesn't sound like the sort of person you'd hire to do some major renovation on your house, does it? Doesn't sound like a construction guy. So even though he hears about these walls that are destroyed and burned with fire, he could have very easily been like, I wish there's something I could do. Let me know what I can do. I'd love, I got the ear of the king. Maybe I can help. But my place is here. My influence is here. He might have felt that way. But notice, he doesn't let these things influence him. Instead, He's burdened by what God has laid on his heart about what he's heard, and he prays, and he prays diligently, and he goes, I want to help and be a part of what God is doing, despite the fact I have all this privilege and luxury and influence and power that I could use, I'm willing to do whatever God would have me do. And I cannot help but ask you to consider what all Nehemiah would go through, what this would mean for him, Not only would he have to leave all this luxury and power and influence and privilege behind, this thing that he probably felt he could be used by God in, but instead he was going to go on a hard road, face opposition on the way there, and then have to do all this rebuilding, and people would be stirred up, and what is going on, and and people would oppose the power, the work. That must have been really hard. You'd face mockings. His men would sleep in their clothes with their swords on their sides. They'd be faced with discouragement. And despite all these things, the wall would be completed in what seems like absolute record time, even by our construction standards today. And I wonder what God is calling you and I to do. And what are the things that we might be like, but God, the things I'm already here and and have access to and I'm doing, maybe you could use those things. And God is saying, I know I could, but I'm asking you to leave those things behind. I'm asking for you to lean into what I have burdened on your heart and pray about these things. And if I should open a door that you might be willing to leave those things behind and walk into an uncomfortable, unknown place where I'm doing something else and I want to use you. When you're not feeling comfortable, where you're, you feel like I don't have the skills to do this. I, 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 who am I to rebuild a wall? 
And what might God be asking you or I to do? What has he burdened with us today? And what luxuries or influences or comforts or privileges might we need to lay aside to pursue what God is asking each of us to do, to participate in alongside God? To what is he calling you and I to today? Let's pray. Dear God, I pray that you would burden our hearts with the work that you are already up to behind the scenes, the things that you want us to participate in, that we would not get caught up in the positions of power and influence and privilege and luxury that we have now, that we'd be willing to lay those things aside to pursue your kingdom calling in our lives, that we would not hold so tightly to what you have given us, that we would not be willing to pursue what you have laid on our hearts. Lord, this is not an easy thing that you are calling us to do, but you are calling us to lay aside the things that we so easily trust in and to trust instead fully in you, that we would pursue you into the unknown to participate alongside you in the work that you are up to in our time and in our day. I pray that you would make that clear to each of us what you are calling us to do. It's in your name we pray. Amen.